This is the East TraumaCast. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the next edition of the East TraumaCast. It is Monday, March 30th, and tonight we are bringing you the second part of a two-part series focused on the management of surgical patients during the COVID outbreak. Part one focused mostly on the care of emergency general surgery and trauma patients. Tonight, we will turn our attention to our ICU patients. Just a few reminders. One, this is not meant to be a comprehensive review. Two, information is changing daily, and so we ask that you please continue to do your own research and use our discussion as a guide. Three, each of our comments are meant to be our own, and none of us are speaking on behalf of our hospitals and institutions. And lastly, we just want to offer our immense gratitude to our guests today, all of whom took the time out of their very, very busy clinical practices to share the most up-to-date information available with us and our listeners. So we'll get started with each of our guests introducing themselves and letting us know where they are from. Let's start with you, Nick. Hi, my name is Nick Mark, and I'm an intensivist in Seattle, Washington. Sheldon. Hi, it's Sheldon Tepperman. I've got two hats. I'm the trauma medical director at Jacoby Medical Center, and I'm also the trauma system medical director for New York City Health and Hospital. So that's Bellevue, Elmhurst, Kings, Harlem, Lincoln, and Jacoby. And I have a friend here. Hi, I'm Alex Guerrero. I'm a trauma surgeon based in New York City. I run a surgical group called Intertrauma Consulting that functions like a locums company to help out facilities that are short-staffed. Alex is doing an awesome job. He's saving a lot of lives. He's a very brave soul. Thank you, guys. I'm also joined by two very familiar voices. Carrie and Matt, can you introduce yourselves? Sure. I'm Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And this is Matt Martin. I'm at Scripps Mercy Hospital in San Diego. Thanks, everyone. So, Nick, we're going to get started with you. First, I'd like to thank you for your ICU one-pager on COVID-19. For those of you who haven't seen it, it's available for free on the internet at onepagericu.com, and I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. So I'm curious, Nick, how many times have you updated this so far? I think we're on version 2.7.1 now, so it's probably about nine or 10 updates every couple of days. Um, I've noticed it's in many different languages as well. Yeah, it's in 17 languages, which uh, I, I'm only responsible for the English one, but I've been helped out by this amazing crowdsourcing effort. You know, medical students, doctors around the world have kind of stepped in to translate, which is pretty cool. So a few questions. For those of us who don't remember their epidemiology, can you remind us what R0 or R0 means? Yeah, so it's the replicative number. It's basically if one person has it, on average, how many people will they pass it to? And it reflects characteristics both of the virus and of the environment. So for example, if you do things like institute social distancing or hand washing, that number will go down. So have you seen that number go down in Seattle as social distancing has taken hold? So yes, it went down. I don't remember the precise numbers. And that was presumably a result of Governor Inslee instituting a stay-at-home order very early, probably a lot of people in Seattle being good about staying, staying home and avoiding social interactions. Also in Seattle, we tend to be a little bit distanced just to begin with. So we, maybe we were predisposed to, to do that. Sheldon and Alex, do you have any idea of what that R not looks like in New York? You know, one thing I can tell you, if you're in this hospital, you're getting the disease. The staff are getting sick. The staff is getting sick by the many, many dozens 
at any given time, 10 or 15% of the residents are down with it. My partner, Hodge Reddy, had it. This chief medical officer of a hospital had it, and on and on and on. And also, our colleagues are dying. A, a, a very famous and well-loved neurosurgeon, he died this morning at Montefiore Hospital. It's happening all over the city. Sheldon, do you think that this is even in people who are wearing proper PPE, or are you also beyond that at this point? So I think everybody's trying their best uh, with the PPE. There are moments when a patient's in trouble, and you know, Matt sent me this thing last night that there are no emergencies during a pandemic, and I, and I think everybody understands that. But there are moments when your patient's in trouble and maybe there is a little bit of a slip. I can tell you, uh, I have a, a newfound admiration for emergency medicine physicians, especially ours uh, all across the, the health and hospitals. They are fearless. They are at the front lines, and they don't really have the opportunity to completely don everything as their patients are crashing. So I think there's a bunch of elements. I think that, you know, these are not hazmat suits. This is not Ebola. We do not have the time for that. We know from the experience of SARS and MERS that a disproportionate number of healthcare workers get sick with these coronaviruses. And probably some of that has to do with the fact that we're in the room at very high risk moments. So if you're, if you like me or somebody who intubates, you're exposed to a ton of aerosol directed right up at your face. And when they looked at the 12 or so healthcare workers who got SARS back in 2006, 2007, 11 of them were in the room during intubation. That's a very high risk moment. I would just add to that, Nick, that uh, so right now we've got uh, two nurses in my intensive care unit that are on ventilators, one that is prone. And if, if you're a person of faith, I would ask that we all pray for her and these were nurses that were nowhere, nowhere near ventilators and aerosolizing procedures. Yeah, well, let me add, I think if, if when you get to that point, in almost all hospitals, you're PPE stressed. So, you know, we're hearing all about people reusing masks, you know, they're having to keep it for a week in a brown paper bag, and we're trying to figure out new ways to re-sterilize, and, and nobody has enough pappers. So, so maybe, you know, in a situation where you had perfect PPE, but in the current scenario, you either have inadequate PPE or, you know, you're doing so many things. There's so many opportunities to break it. And all you need is one break in, in that sterile process and you're infected. And well, fatigue is a major risk factor, too. You know, the more tired you are, the more likely you are to make a mistake in donning or doffing. Let me ask about the you had mentioned some of the management and the proning. Some hospitals are going from once you hit six liters nasal cannula, we're not even going to try high flow. We're not even going to try non-invasive um, pressure. We're going straight from six liters is your max. You go straight to intubation. Is that a, a reasonable thing to do because the high flow and the BiPAP or CPAP are increased risk? Okay. So I think there's, there's understandably concerns about using high flow because it is theoretically aerosolizing. I think it may not be as bad as non-invasive such as BiPAP. I think it's also a resource that we have and we have a lot of it and it's a resource that we're using. I've used high flow nasal cannula both to try to temporize and avoid intubation. I've used it peri-intubation as a form of apneic oxygenation and I've extubated patients from uh, an tube to high flow nasal cannula. 
But I think it's, it's well worth using in treating people with COVID. I was just reading an article about high flow and then proning those patients. Have you all been doing that at all? I just spoke to my ID chief, and little did I know that in this crisis, she's running a home ID COVID clinic. And these are mostly hospital employees, residents. And she has them home. So they have these little O2 sats that you get from the pharmacy. And she has them self-proning. She has them on hydroxychloroquine and self-proning at home. And if their sats, you know, are okay, she's leaving them at home. Like, oh, my God, I just found out about this an hour ago. But if their sats drop and they're not able to prone or do other maneuvers that make them okay, then they come into the building. So. So just a comment about the high flow. And again, we, we are six trauma centers, but 11 hospitals. And I would say three or four of them, and I'm just guessing, because we have a group call every day with all of our critical care doctors on a WebEx. And we also are connected by a WhatsApp group and all of our critical care doctors are on there. So we have eyes on continuously. I, one of my strongest recommendations to East is if you have groups of people that are local that have expertise, you got to get together and have continuous communication. So I would say maybe a third of our hospitals in the emergency room are trying either high flow or BiPAP. You really, really should be doing those things in a negative pressure room because it does spew Viron. And I would say that the experience is mixed, that occasionally you can save a patient from a ventilator. I can tell you that the several times, if the patient's deep in, they've been laboring for a long period of time, they're profoundly hypoxic you should skip that step and intubate them. I agree. I, I think, and tell me if your experience is, is the same, Sheldon, but I'm kind of seeing two kind of presentations. One is the sort of stuttering respiratory failure where somebody comes in with hypoxia that progresses over hours to days. And then also seeing this kind of terrifying fulminant hypoxia where the person comes in, walks in with a SAT of 70 or lower, and they just need to be immediately intubated. Agree with all. And I do, just with the disclaimer, I'm the world's expert with five days of experience. (laughs) Uh, Welcome to the club. I think that's all of us. (laughs) So, uh, Nick, I just want to circle back to your one pager and talk about a few more stats that you have on it. It seemed like the best we can tell, at least from the latest iteration of your one pager, was that the overall mortality is about 1.4%, noting that we truly don't have a clear denominator, I'd say. But I'm wondering, how does that change for those admitted to the ICU and specifically for those who end up being intubated? So I think we don't have a denominator or a numerator, frankly, because many people are dying after many days on a ventilator. So the epidemiologic term would be right censoring, but we don't know how many people who have the virus are going to survive. So that estimate has got a lot of asterisks attached to it. We do know that of the people who are admitted to the ICU, the prognosis is poor if they're on a ventilator. The experience of my colleagues who took care of that cohort of nursing home residents was that about two-thirds of them died. We've had a slightly better rate than that, probably because the number of comorbidities is a little lower in treating younger patients. But this is a terrifying disease, and a lot of people who are ending up on the ventilator are dying. Sheldon, I was just wondering, have you all had the experience yet of getting to extubate someone or are you not there yet? So we we are there. And first, I want to echo Nick's comments because they're right on. 
just from afar, he has a certain wisdom that I appreciate. So on the extubation thing, so what's great about this uh, connection that I'm talking about with my 11 hospitals is we go around and we talk about this. So at so-and-so in hospital, let's say Lincoln, for example, they were able to extubate roughly four patients. And at Lincoln, I believe, and I could have gotten this wrong, could be another one of our places, the four stayed extubated. But for example, perhaps at Elmhurst, they extubated five and two got reintubated. And I know here we extubated five and two or three got reintubated. So, you know, this is a recruitable disease. It has this weird thing where you don't have these high peak airway pressures. It's not a lung water problem, but they de-recruit almost immediately. So the wisdom that we're going with, and I'd like to have Nick speak about this, is we're going to leave them on positive pressure way after normal extubation criteria. We're talking about, for us in the SICU, and by the way, we're using exclusively APRV in the SICU. We're going to leave them two extra days on some kind of pressure support. And then our plan is to even then extubate them to BiPAP because so many people seem to be failing. But I'd like to hear Nick's comments. I think those are those are great thoughts, Sheldon. Um, yeah, so a couple of pearls to share about extubating people. Um, number one, I think a lot of these people are PEEP dependent, as you say, and that may reflect... It may reflect either the fact that there is an undiagnosed cardiomyopathy in many of these people, so they benefit from the PEEP there, or it may reflect some characteristic of the lung disease itself. Whatever the reason, I think it makes sense to, if you're contemplating extubating somebody to negative pressure, to do a zero PEEP trial as part of your SBT. And so the way you do this is normally an SBT will be like five over five, five of pressure support over five of PEEP. You can instead have your respiratory therapist dial the PEEP down to zero. So essentially they don't have the benefit of PEEP anymore and you can see how they do. Just a few, you know, maybe 10 minutes of that can unmask people who are requiring PEEP. Another pearl is when you extubate these people, and I try to be in the room for it if possible, I've been having like a bag over them. That way, a lot of the stuff that sprays out gets captured. You know, you can suction the oropharynx, you can suction down the tube, but then use something mechanical to capture it so it's not spraying on everybody to the same extent. Um, the last point I think is, uh, is kind of a hard one, but normally when we extubate people, we are hoping to have about a 10% reintubation rate. I think under the present circumstances, we have to tolerate higher than that. We're going to have more people who need the tube again, and that's fine. What we're trying to do is we're trying to benefit, we're trying to benefit people by getting them off the ventilator. And if some of them need to go back on, we can cross that bridge later. It also means that, you know, we're potentially freeing up more ventilators by being more aggressive about extubating early. So Alex, will you extubate them to high flow or to CPAP or BiPAP? Well, we haven't really gotten that far. You know, the, the, the people that we've extubated, when we've had to reintubate, they've gotten really sick again. It isn't like just reintubating and then we're starting back on a PEEP of five. They're getting sick with a bad P to F. So we've been pretty reluctant to extubate. Mm. After how about, how about you, Nick? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think you, you take a chance sometimes, like you manage to get somebody down to conditions where you can extubate. 
And then you end up reintubating them. And, you know, a day later, they're back on 70, 80% FiO2. So it's, this is a hard disease to manage because it's kind of insidious in its onset. And then it's very prolonged once people are into the critical phase of it. And sometimes it's hard to predict. It might seem like somebody is getting better one day and then worse the next. And if you happen to extubate them on the day where they seem like they're getting better, you may regret that decision the next day when you're putting the tube back in. And I want to know fact or fiction. Do patients typically hit the worst of their disease on day five? And if it is true, because that's what's going around social media, if it is true, should we weigh that in our consideration on whether we're going to extubate somebody that we think is going to fly? I'm going to let Nick go with that because it's com- it's a complex question. Some yes, some no, some hit early, some hit late. You don't go from being okay to hypoxic in two minutes. You definitely are going to labor for a while. It definitely, the, the virus, which by the way, you're going to forgive me about this, but hashtag fuck this virus because it's really <laughs> just a nightmare. Well, um, like a true yeah. New Yorker. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it does take a while to get rolling, you know, and it's, and it's hitting the lung directly and maybe it's hitting the heart directly. The more comorbidities you have, the worse your COPD and the other things, the earlier it's going to hit you and strike you but it just doesn't come on in one day and, and then take your life away from you. It does take some time to get rolling. Nick? Completely, agree, completely agree with that. I, I think there's two challenges to sort of defining the time course. One is most people's symptoms start off pretty mild and then get progressively worse. So defining day zero of illness is really hard. And the second is that people present to medical attention at different points. Some people are really stoic and come in, they walk in, with SATs in the 60s or 70s. Other people present much earlier and then they deteriorate while in the hospital. So it's really hard to say exactly what day people get worse on. You know, I, I think there are definitely people where you think on, on, when you first meet them that they have relatively non-severe illness and then in the space of just a day or two, they become one of the sickest people on a ventilator in your ICU. And Carrie, if I could just add to that, when you got someone that's been huffing and puffing and tacking and they're really about to draw their last breath. And sometimes they occasionally look peaceful and you don't realize how sick they are. You want the person that's doing that intubation to get it in on the first try. So this is not the intern, right? This should be faculty, senior residents, your anesthesiologist. This is not your grandmother's intubation. DL, video, laryngoscopy. There is no DL, no D is in David, intubations being done anywhere in New York City. Yeah, I, I second all of that. I think, um, you know, I guess I, I would describe myself as an older millennial intensivist. So I, I sort of grew up liking VL a lot. That's my preferred way to intubate most people. Um, but I think it's the only really safe way to intubate these people. I, I think it can be a really terrifying experience because these are true RSIs. You don't bag them. They can desaturate precipitously. Yeah. What Nick means by you don't bag them is the ventilator is turned on. You're going to confirm that you're in using hopefully an inline CO2 indicator and you just don't bag them. It goes straight to the turned on ventilator. Right. And the, and the other point, too, is you don't you don't bag them with a BVM. Like so you don't give them induction meds and then bag them to get their sats up to 100 and then try to place the tube. You just go for the tube. The other piece of this is just like having a proning checklist, it's very good to have an intubation checklist and have clear team communications so that you can do all of these things really smoothly. 
making sure that you have all of the equipment that you need in the room and then the other stuff, the just in case stuff right outside the room and somebody, somebody who is watching can grab it for you is really key. Can you also agree, and I'm sure you guys did this in Seattle, every hospital in New York City, once the patient settled down, has the IV pumps outside the room, every hospital in New York City. And that's done to protect the providers and also to allow for instantaneous changing of the drips when, you know, to up and down the sedation and if the patient's on pressers. There are some caveats to that, right? The the pressers are going to need to run longer into the room, so... You may need to provide an additional bolus of the of whatever meds, but that is, and I think we both can say this in a loud voice, that is standard of care. Yeah, and I would actually, I, I totally agree. I think get those IV pumps out of the room, point number one, and depending on your ventilator, try to get your ventilator controls out of the room too, depending on which ventilators you use. So for example, if you use the Servo I, Servo U, or the Hamilton G5, those ventilators are designed where the control unit, the thing on top with the screen, can actually come off. And so you can, there's, they also, in some cases, make an extension cord for using a ventilator while a patient's in MRI, but you can actually have the ventilator in the room with the patient, the box part, but the controls for the ventilator in the hallway outside next to your IV pump. Just adding to that, as the medical director of respiratory therapy here, that's absolutely true, but a ventilator in this epidemic is gold. So when you take that monitor and microprocessor off of it, I call it the headless horseman, and you bring (laughs) it outside, it has to be 100% stable because if you break that thing, you've lost the ventilator. So there are manufactured tents and then there's like arts and craft project tents that people are using for intubating patients so that they can kind of cover the patient with a plastic of some form and then do a video laryngoscopy. Is that something that either of you have instituted or something that we should be thinking about? Because my wave is coming in the next few weeks is the anticipation. And so we're just trying to get prepared. Welcome to the party. (laughs) Yeah. My, My answers to that are no comma no in the sense that I haven't used them. I, it makes me nervous to use them because if you have just like little tiny armholes and you're trying to do this, you know, relatively complex, delicate procedure, I have a feeling that it's going to make it a lot harder. And if you're talking about doing uh, intubations in people where they're going to desat quickly, that may not be, that may not be wise. You know, I think the maybe the better strategy is to reserve some of those scarce resources like PAPRs for use in really high risk situations like intubations. And, you and, can and also just to add to that, I don't think I want to be in a tent with the patient's head and my lungs, even if the N95 may not be sufficient to overcome that amount of plume, as I am saying. Well, some of these tents are, you're outside the tent, but you put your arms through almost like a little NICU kind of baby bed. I've seen seen two designs. Yeah, I've seen two designs. One is like a rigid box, which seems like you'll never have the proper mechanical advantage to do this procedure well. And two is like a more flexible tent where I worry about getting snagged or stuck on it. Um, I don't think that now is the time to try out some new thing made in your garage to do a high-risk procedure like intubating. I think now it's a good time to think about how can we protect staff with the right equipment and have the fewest number of staff in the room for that procedure. And then how can we practice? So having as much COVID intubation practice in the next few weeks so your teams can get ready and do it smoothly. 
Jelton mentioned that he's using exclusively APRV for these folks. Nick, was that what you were doing in your institution as well? I I am not as big a fan of APRV, not because I don't think it's a good mode, but just because I think it's a complex mode. And if the people you work with aren't familiar with it, there's ways to get it wrong. Um, It's not something that we use very much at the hospitals where I work. So we, we haven't been using it as much. Can I speak to that for a moment? Please. Please. We're, we're sort of running this uh, randomized trial here, right? Because we got the medical docs who I have a tremendous amount of respect for who are really just in it. I mean, you know, again, New York is on fire, right? There is not a hospital in New York City and its environments does that, that does not have 55-0 ventilated COVID patients and hundreds and hundreds of patients in their facilities. For example, the Northwell system has two thousand COVID patients today on the 30th of March admitted to their facilities. So we're doing this sort of not randomized trial, but a comparative trial because all of the, the patients under the care of pulmonary critical care have ARDSNET protocol. And those patients are requiring a massive amount of Nimbex and Brachyronium, so much so that the pharmacy is unable to source the material again. And I can't speak for the entire city, but I know that health and hospitals at a certain point will run out of every paralytic we could possibly use. And I'm just wondering if that's a winning strategy, you know, because it's being done for desynchrony. And if you think about it, you know, the chronic neuropathy, the myopathy of critical illness, you think about being on these paralytics for week after week after week, there'd be nothing left to the end plate. And look, again, this is a five-day experience. The reason why we're using APRV, it's just what Nick said, right? We have my wonderful partner, Mel Stone, who, who grew up at Shock Trauma and Hibachi and learned this and brought this to us in the year 2000. We all thought it was crazy because, you know, you spend most of your life with your, you know, in inspiration, which is weird, but it works. And the patients just breathe over it. There is no desynchrony. We use moderate amounts of sedation. And, for, and their P-highs are around anywhere with Alex between 24 and around 30. And they, they seem to like the ventilator mode. Now, again, we're five days in. Maybe this is somehow a terrible mistake. And five days from now, we will discover that APRD was a disaster. So at five days with about 15 patients treated on it, it's working like charm. Alex? Yeah. I mean, the PDFs are looking pretty good. You know, I'm rounding in the MICU as well. And so... It looks to me, I mean, I might, I'm obviously biased because I'm a surgeon, but I think the sickness is <laughs> going really well with all this APRV. And but Nick, you're, you're also right. And so I want to caution the audience that not only are some providers unfamiliar with, and by the way, Alex has got this four by, three by four card, which today he gives to me for free. But once he's no longer my consultant, he's going to charge me $1,000 a card. <laughs> And it's very easy to teach people, but the, but the respiratory therapists, oh, yes. oh my God, they're so brave. You know, I'm so proud of them. Oh my God, those, the poor folks, they have to be comfortable with it. If they're not comfortable with it, then you shouldn't, you should not try it. Yeah. If you're, if your institution is comfortable using uh, an ARDSnet lung protective ventilation strategy, I think that's a place to start though. I totally agree that in the sort of patients with refractory hypoxemia, you've got to try things and proning, neuromuscular blockade, APRV are all reasonable things to try. And if your institution is good at APRV, that's probably a pretty good thing to try early. 
there's a lot of talk about the number of ventilators. There's some talk about the number of trained staff who can run those ventilators, but there isn't nearly enough talk about all the other ICU consumables. Somebody who is intubated is going to need medicines for pain and sedation. Somebody who is paralyzed with neuromuscular blockers is going to A, need those drugs, and B, need more meds for sedation. And we're burning through those at a prodigious rate. I mean, whenever possible, I'm trying to use vecuronium instead of cisatricuronium, vec instead of nimbex, so that we can save the nimbex for the people with renal dysfunction who really need it. That said, if there's ventilator strategies that make it so you don't have to use the neuromuscular blockers, I think that's a great idea. And that, that would be APRV, right? Right. And that's, APRV, I think that's the big appeal of it. For our, for our listeners that may not understand that ventilator mode, and again, Nick has said very clearly, and I think very astutely, that you should use the ventilator mode that you are comfortable with as a critical care doctor. But if you're comfortable with APRV, it does not require that degree of sedation, and it does, we are not using any paralytics. The virtue of APRV is that you can breathe over the machine as you are in full inspiration, and you don't have this the synchrony that requires the high levels of sedation and the paralysis. Nick, can we talk a little bit about proning? How, in your experience, how early were you turning to prone these patients? Well, so I think the literature tells us that if you want to realize the benefits of proning, you need to do it early. So like in the classic Proceva trial, they proned early and they had an incredible reduction in mortality. I've been trying to do that with my patients too. So being very aggressive about intubating, lining, putting them under a muscular blockade, maybe supporting them with things like inhaled prostacyclines during all this. And then as soon as they're ready physically, getting the team in the room and proning them. Nick, can you give us a parameter? Like, are you, are you choosing a, a P to F, an FIO2, you know, um, or are you just going to prone everybody? That's a great question. I've been going more as a, just because it's so resource intensive to, to prone people, I've been using kind of a, am I doing a good job on the ventilator as, uh, as the trigger? So if I'm on very high ventilatory support and I'm nervous that I don't have much more room, I'll be very aggressive about proning those people. In the study, PDF less than 150 is is a good trigger to use. That is. And if, Carrie and Red, if we can just spend a moment on how this proning situation developed for us. That'd so be great. in New York City, believe me, we're not using beds and tortoises and rotoprones. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn to Alex because what we've done is we've created a proning team and we've done this on the fly, right? We had someone who was an expert. I brought them in as our nurse needed to be proned. We hadn't done a manual proning in this building ever. Everybody's being prone manually and it's using the burrito technique. Alex, how are we doing with that? That's exactly what we use too, by the way. And I think that's the only way to do it. That's the only way that people can do this at scale. Rotoprone breads are not a solution. Um, we're trying to teach this across 11 hospitals, the burrito technique. So Alex is, is my on the spot teacher for all of these ICUs. How's it going, Alex? So it's going really well. You know, what we've done is basically come up with a logistic guideline to it. So every day at 5 p.m., the proning team kind of gets together. We have a piece of paper that we tape on the wall. It's got the first parts of the checklist of all the stuff you need, and then how many people you need and all the specifics of it. And then it's a 14-step thing, and we all basically read it together every time so we don't skip anything. And then everyone starts to learn it, and then we're all doing it the same way. And then in the morning at 8 a.m., we've got the supinating team, and then we, we all do it again. There's a lot of videos online. What's the best one? Alex? The one from Chuck Trauma? There's one from, uh, I think it's Michigan, that's actually pretty 
but briefly describe it. So basically, basically, if you can kind of picture picture a patient in your mind, you've got a sheet underneath them, okay? Then you've got a sheet that you lay on top of them, and then you put your pillows on top of that. And, and some then, of those pillows are doubled. Right? Yeah, yeah. So we put two pillows per pillowcase so they're more dense. And then you put a third sheet on top, okay? And then you roll the sides together. So you're holding the three layers. So there are, there are three or four proners on each side. They're paired. You have a partner. When the uh, team leader gives the command, you start rolling this as tight as possible so it captures and closes down on the pillows like a burrito. They have to be as tight as possible. Yeah, and there, there are some real specifics that are important. For example, whether you roll up or you roll down based on which way you're turning. So it's really important that before you try this, you either look at our checklist or watch the video. It's also not that hard. That's the other thing, because I was scared of it, manual proning. You, you watch the video, you get a friend that knows how to do it, you game it out maybe with a mannequin or a friend, and then you just go do it, being very, very careful with the ET tube. Make sure the ET tube is deep before you try this, because most people are not disconnecting the vent because you're aerosolizing. So turning someone with an endotracheal tube in line to the ventilator is dangerous. It's got to be deep. One human being has to control that. But I do want to say that do it safely, have your checklist, but you got to get to it. Yep. And I would encourage, I would encourage people to place your central line and art line first, because it's going to be very difficult afterwards. It only takes, you know, 10, 15 minutes to get both of those in, but it will make your nurse's life so much easier because changing peripheral IVs when somebody is prone is a real pain. And I'll add that, you know, you'll have a lot of places that say we don't prone or we've never proned. I guarantee you in your hospital, you have people who know how to prone and that's the OR people. So mm, if, if, your ICU doesn't, if your ICU doesn't know how to do it, Go get your OR nurse and anesthesiologist who prone patients all the time for yeah, surgery. Yeah, that's that's uh, and, and they can do an in-service that that's really helpful. So, Nick, this I wanted out. to ask one more question um, around hypoxemia, and I was wondering, in your experience, did you have any folks who ended up on ECMO? And also for Sheldon too, have you guys um, and Alex, have you thought about this? Have you revised your protocols on who you would even offer ECMO to? Let's let Nick go first. <laughs> So the answer is yes. I think ECMO is controversial for refractory hypoxemia even before COVID. The reason is that it's super resource intensive. With COVID, those resources are even more strained. So committing somebody to have a perfusionist in the room or a second nurse in the room is a big commitment. I haven't seen any explicit policies or protocols, but I think we're all trying to use it selectively in cases of refractory hypoxemia where we've tried other things like proning, neuromuscular blockade, and in people with fewer comorbidities who are likely to derive the most benefit. So, you know, this is not something that is available to everybody. This is something to use very selectively, I think. And if and I to, could give say, you, to give you an example, I, the patient this week who's younger than me who got ECMO and did well. Okay. When you say did well, did they come off the ECMO? E yes. Oh. All right. So ju just one thing for my safety net. Uh, hospital peeps like we're a safety net hospital New York City Health Hospital is the largest public hospital system in the nation and you know what we have is this wonderful body of people that have this you know they're mission driven and I'm very proud to serve with what we don't have is a lot of stuff right we we don't have a lot of stuff and this is a very hard emergency to go through you know we, we, we're a one-trick pony in a lot of areas 
So one of the reasons why we're stressing so much is we don't have deep pockets. And one of the things that we don't have in any of our facilities is the ability to do ECMO. So we, we rely on our richer relatives. You know, in our case, it's our academic affiliate monitor. And a lot of places have stood down. You know, the way, the way this usually works in this setting is they come get you, right? They come get you with a portable machine and they, they uh, cannulate here and then the patient gets so much better and they take you away. Right now, that has been stood down by a lot of these centers that come get you. And our sister institution has largely stood that down. They've all, I, I, was, I had a conversation with them last night, their senior guy. What they said to me is the experience in Paris is terrible with it. There are 60 patients presently, he says, that are on ECMO in uh, Paris, and they cannot get the cannulas out, and they can't get these patients off after two weeks. Maybe the virus is loving the plastic. And there is a great deal of reluctance. But I would second what Nick said. If you have a young and viable patient, this is the New England Journal of Medicine yesterday said there's two, two primary first goals. Goal number one is patient or human life years. And that's complicated, by the way, that it's, I'm saying it in one sentence, and it's actually five paragraphs, but more or less, it's human life years. And the second, and this is really, really important for our audience, is preserving the healthcare response by preserving the life of healthcare workers. What I have said is the two nurses that I'm taking care of on ventilators in the surgical intensive care unit, we are a holy place. That is a holy place. In New York City and in my hospital, we must hold the line to take care of our own. And there is an ethical construct for it. And, I, and I'm just going to read it. If, if you guys will just give me two seconds on this. Sure. I'm just going to read it from the New England Journal of Medicine yesterday. So this is the second recommendation in the fair allocation of scarce re- medical resources in the NEJM yesterday. Recommendation number two, critical COVID-19 interventions, testing, PPE, ICU, beds, ventilators, therapeutics, and vaccines should go first, this is the New England Journal of Medicine, to frontline healthcare workers and others who care for ill patients and who keep critical infrastructure operating, particularly workers who face a high risk of infection and whose training makes them difficult to replace. These workers should be given priority not because they are somehow more worthy, but because of their instrumental value. They are essential to the pandemic response. And my friends in the East out there, we must, we must save our own. We must create capacity to save our own. I'm going to put a grain of salt on that. What if we have an RT, a nurse, a physician, even a cafeteria worker, the people who clean my room, the person who sits in the uh, administrative office, they come in and the argument to, well, they should get the first resources. Like, what are the chances that they're coming back to work in time to actually help us during this pandemic? Well, you know, I, I hear you about that. So, for example, let's let's take not that nurse, and I will come back to your question. Let's take sure. other nurses that we that are not quite so sick, but we keep specialized on them to prevent them from becoming so sick. They get the hydroxychloroquine. They get special eyes on them to prevent them from coming so sick that they get back into the game. But also, as I've been asked that question, what about the long term, right? We eventually, we're going to have a depleted uh, workforce. We eventually are going to have to get back to work. You know, so yes, you're right. She's not going to be back in three or four months, but she will be back in a year. If we let all these folks go, then who's going to take care of us down the road? 
the experience in 1918 was that there were two hits. There was a spring wave and then there was a fall wave. We don't know what COVID-19 is going to look like, but we should be ready for not just the short game, but also the long game. Uh, just to echo what, what he quoted there, which is that I think we have a moral obligation to take care of our own. And I think it's important for morale of the teams to know that we're committed to our own people. If we're expecting people to continue giving their all as they're doing, we have to show that we're going to take care of them. We're going to do our all for them when they get sick. Nick, we got four thumbs up in this room from what you just said. Four thumbs up. <laughs> if I could just add to what Nick said, that that is critical. And, yeah, morale. and again, the experience we saw this all the time in the military, which is another setting where we see a lot of, you know, disaster mass casualty scenarios. And we hear that time and time again of when these guys come in and get hurt and their leaders come in and they say, you know, my guys are willing to go out and do these missions because they know that you guys will go to any length to take care of them. And we've got to do the same thing for our teams at home and our other healthcare workers. You know, we, we've got to show them that we know you're sacrificing and you're risking to do this job and we will have no holds barred and we'll do everything we can to take care of you if you get sick. And Carrie and Red, I, you know, I, in particular, I appreciate Matt's military experience because this virus is the enemy. It is a working analogy, and this virus is coming for us. It is coming for us, just as Matt said. Thank you. So, Sheldon, you mentioned treating with um, hydroxychloroquine. I, can you, you and Nick both talk about what medications you guys have been using? That's my one question. And my other question is, how often are we seeing a bacterial pneumonia superimposed upon this virus? So I'll tackle uh, the first part of this. The one thing I have to say is the specific antiviral therapy does not have traditional science in any way, shape, or form that, that the, the five or six or four of us on this call you know, are used to using. It is anecdotal. It is, uh, you know, there are case studies. There's a few, you know, small group studies. So this is all really off-book stuff. And Anything we say today, like, for example, you know, Zithromax is in today. And I mean, we changed our protocol today because a, 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 a Paris or a French study came out, you know, showing 80 patients. So, you know, so hydroxychloroquine, I would say in New York City, for, and there's a protocol for moderate and severe illness. Everybody with some moderate and severe illness in New York City, I would say, is on hydroxychloroquine. And then I would also encourage everybody right now, this disease is coming for the whole country. And Matt and I are having this conversation about the density phenomenon. Matt believes firmly that this is a density issue in terms of flattening the curve and that, you know, our population centers that are the most dense are going to fare uh, most poorly. And I certainly hope that that's true. And I hope, to, I mean, I, I don't hope that it's true, but I hope that San Diego, for example, as Matt hopes, will be spared. But my message to everybody, given New York City is on fire, it is on fire. This is hell on earth. Like you're not seeing it in the media, but I am running from emergency to emergency to emergency. Our comrades are falling. Nurses are falling. Our patients are falling. There is an RRT or a code you know, when I open the door, there will have been five codes. This is literally Armageddon. It is hell on earth what we're experiencing. So I, 
no matter who you are, no matter where you are in America, prepare for this monster. This is a beast. It is hell on earth. You must prepare now, now, now. Do everything you can do. Throw everything you can at this monster or we will not survive. You know, I'd like to just kind of say something along those lines that worked really well at Jacoby that I saw. So last Wednesday, when the SICU finally was open to COVID patients, essentially when it was our turn to open the floodgates, it was akin to when it's a Saturday night at two in the morning and you get a car crash with six, 10 people and you go into this mode where everyone's going to kind of get the same approach. And that worked really well. And we really treated those first 10 patients exactly like that, almost like a mass casualty incident. Yeah, we called it, uh, we call it trauma COVID strike team. So I think one practical thing from this, you know, I, I manage some level two trauma centers and this is going to come to us eventually and it's going to take over our SICU is that we have a clinical pathway in place. So we're not debating what we're going to do when it's time for the trauma surgeons and the SICU service to take care of these patients. So everybody, as soon as they're intubated, they get NG tube, Foley, A-line, triple lumen right away. And we have various parameters for when we're going to prone and we're going to start APRV. So there's no debating when it happens because you're going to get 10 patients at once. So it's something to think about in advance. Totally agree with that. We, I've been doing the same thing. Every, everybody gets all of the procedures that they need up front, and then everybody gets sort of a, a standardized approach. Even if their care is individualized, you should always consider the same things. I'm curious, you mentioned hydroxychloroquine. Are you doing that on study or are you doing that off study? So we are controlling in a responsible way. Every single patient with severe stuff gets this emergency ID consult. It's not the typical thing. They come to the bedside within five minutes. They review to make sure they meet criteria. You know, they have to have a couple of comorbidities. They got to be moderately sick or they're on a ventilator and then it gets approved, but it's a very quick approval process. And I also would encourage my colleagues right now to stand up your IRB protocols. You should be in the remdesivir study. You should be in the IL-6 study. We're actively giving drug and entering patients. You should be standing up all those protocols and that those research protocols right now, right now is the time. I agree. And we, that's exactly what we've done too, is I think you, we as physicians have an obligation to everybody to learn as much as we can caring for people with COVID. And that means if possible, getting them on study so that we can collect that data and we can advance knowledge. Because even though I looked on clinicaltrials.gov recently, there were 198 trials going on. We need to make sure that we actually recruit those trials and finish those trials so we can learn from those trials. Because having a half-finished trial doesn't help us at all. Nick, Sorry. so for your for your patients, you've got a sick patient in the ICU intubated. What is your standard approach to what what drugs are you giving them for COVID? So there there is no standard approach. I've used remdesivir on trial. I've used tocilizumab. I've used steroids and then not steroids as the guidance on that changed. I've used hydroxychloroquine. I've used azithromycin. I'll put the caveat on that that I've used azithromycin when I'm treating somebody for CAP with ceftriaxone and azithromycin. Personally, I do not think the evidence for combining hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin is compelling, but I've kind of de facto done it in many people, if that makes sense. And let's recall that it's a potentially dangerous combination. You've Indeed. got to watch the QT interval very, very carefully. You've got to have like our ID consult before they'll give you the hydroxychloroquine, clears the med, has to see the, the EKG, make sure there isn't a QT problem. 
I want to jump in with a question that we got actually from Twitter, and it's a little bit of a challenging question, but I'm curious what your response is. One of our Twitter followers asked, should CPR be offered to ICU patients with progressive COVID-induced ARDS, or is the risk to staff too high to justify CPR? So if you think about it, right, if their SATs sucked before they coded, when their heart's not beating, their SATs aren't getting any better. But I do want to hear from Nick. So I, I hear what you're saying. I, I think it could be potentially fruitless and unsafe to do a protracted resuscitation in people who are hypoxemic from COVID that's just refractory. That said, there may be some quickly reversible causes, right. thorax, derecruitment, an arrhythmia due to cardiomyopathy. I wouldn't say categorically don't code these people, but I would say unless you can fix something quickly, consider whether it is appropriate and safe to have a long resuscitation. You're absolutely right. Yeah. If it's a young person, yeah. they've had an arrhythmia, and it's that, you should absolutely give it a shot. You're, you're quite wise to say so. If it's a hypoxic arrest, then we're really not re- – we should be resuscitating. Though. We That's right. Be- if, if, if it's somebody who's, who's on maximum ventilatory support, yeah. they've been prone, and their SATs yeah. are creeping downward 90, 80, 70, 60, and that person codes, I don't think there's likely to be a reversible cause there. Exactly. Um, but you know, there, there may be, there may be people who are worth coding. So not no across the board answer. The other thing that I would say is it's worthwhile to think about if you are going to run codes, can you do it with fewer people? And so what this has meant for me is when I'm coding somebody, I'm doing some of the roles that maybe a nurse would do typically so we can have fewer people in the room. So if I'm keeping track of time or pushing meds or running the defibrillator, you know, that's a good way to keep somebody out of harm's way. And Matt, if you could repeat what what we shared yesterday about how there is no emergency in a pandemic. Yeah, well, and and that's gone around on Twitter, and and I think everybody should read it and probably post it in their ICU. And and it just talks about, you know, the point that you need to protect yourself and your people because not only are you taking care of that patient, but you're a force multiplier. You're going to take care of a bunch of future patients. And if you or your staff get sick. And it talks about the Ebola crisis, and they go and they said, you know, if if the patient was arresting, it doesn't matter. We still take the five or ten minutes to put on our PPE. If the patient's shot and bleeding, we still take the five minutes to put on our PPE because there's no emergencies. It was interesting. There was somebody tweeted out something yesterday about how they were putting on PPE with their respiratory therapist, and then they asked the respiratory therapist, "Well, what if that patient coded right now? What would you do?" And the respiratory therapist said, "Well, I wouldn't care. I would run in without PPE." And they were tweeting that out as if, you know, look how brave our people are. And, and I think they, they are, and that just shows the dedication they have. But I think we as leaders should be the ones grabbing that RT and saying, you absolutely will not do that, you know, and, and that is the wrong thing to do. And none of you people should ever do that. You put on your PP no matter what. If a medical staff member gets COVID, they do their, at my hospital at least, we're on 14 days of isolation, and they come back. Are they now like super workers? Like they don't have to do PPE anymore, at least N95s. They just do normal PPE, and they can just keep working without concern about getting sick again? Uh, I think based on case reports, the it's possible to be reinfected. And I don't think we yeah. have a test that tests for immunity at this time in the U.S. We think the advice should be that they should be very careful with their PPE. They might be 
a little less scared and therefore they are good people to lead certain procedures or certain fights <laughs> that you have that you know because they are a little less scared but we think that the correct message is good PPE technique is good PPE technique I completely agree. I think there's I think there's two really important things to remember here. One is there are case reports of people getting reinfected who have cleared it. So just because you've had it cleared, it doesn't mean you're necessarily safe. And two, PPE serves two purposes. It's about protecting you, and it's also about avoiding you becoming contaminated. So if you've got virus on you without PPE and then you go somewhere else, you're potentially spreading it to other people. So, you know, I think, I, I think the answer to the question is we don't know, but we should be really, really careful about having people as, quote, super workers just because they've cleared COVID in the past, both for their safety and for others. Let me ask you guys, as far as your employees who have tested positive, how long are they quarantining for if they don't end up in the hospital? And do they have to test negative to come back? So the policy is supposed to be roughly, you've got to be three days a febrile before you come in. And I don't know about the tests uh, status. The guidance right now is at a minimum, three days a febrile and strong enough to work at a minimum. But again, the policy is shifting, and that's just a very, very, very general guideline. We actually just went through this. At least one person in our group is COVID positive, and I can tell you the policy here is they have to be a minimum of seven days from the onset of symptoms, and they have to be a minimum of three days asymptomatic. Uh, and there's no requirement for repeat testing. Yeah, I think that that's going to be sort of a, a standard because that lines up with us. And I think that is a fair statement to say, subject to you know municipal and hospital variability. One, one idea that I want to put out there, and this is not a policy or anything yet, but think about what we could do with the huge labor force of physicians who are going to be isolated or quarantined during this. I mean, if we had the telemedicine infrastructure in place, we could be providing lots of phone a friend critical care support to small hospitals. And I wish that somebody, maybe one of your listeners will figure out a way to do that. So like if I, if I can't work, for you know, X days, maybe I can still help out some local community doc who's uncomfortable with a ventilator. We could have them sewing N95 masks. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> One thing I'm hoping we can talk about is leadership in this crisis because we have a lot of leaders in East. Yes, please. I think as a leader, you have to be in it. And you know, it wasn't absolutely necessary for me to have physically prone that nurse. There were sufficient people in the room. But as we said earlier, if I'm going to lead this response for the trauma center and for the trauma centers for New York City, I have to be able to demonstrate to my staff and the people around me that I am willing to do what it takes to end this epidemic. And I think the, our leaders, you know, unless you're, you're particularly at risk, if you're particularly at risk, then I think you should sit to the side and help in other ways. But if not, then you need to go in those rooms and, and go get this virus. And then just in terms of organizing your rounds and your residents, if you're an academic institution, you need eyes on, right? We are doing, and Alex is helping me with this, you need frequent, frequent vent checks. We are, on our sickest patients, 
doing Q2 hourly event checks. These are very quick rounds. These are, okay, what's the PDF? What's the last guess? What are the APR v- the settings? And what are our next two moves? It's, it's a 15 or 30 or 40 second conversation. What I worry about is SBAR. What I worry about is the sign out rounds when we're handing off. And also I worry about nighttime, right? Nighttime is just as dangerous as anything else. You have to have equal staff at nighttime. You've got to have senior staff, senior eyes, lots of worker bees at nighttime. This is not a time for us to rest. You know, I've been saying, and, and Matt has corrected me, and, and Bilal Josephs and Matt has helped me with this, my own trials and tribulation. I've said that, you know, they said you got to slow down. I've said that I will rest when this bug is dead or when I am. And by the way, Matt tells me that's not good because I will, you know, I need to slow down so I can be a good leader. And also my, my partner, James, is not going to want to hear that. So I am going to live through this thing. And if I'm going to live through it, I need my, my staff, my friends around me. We need to support each other through this thing. But you need senior staff continuously in the building, knowledgeable pulmonary critical care, knowledgeable surgical intensive care unit, watching the residents, working with the residents at nighttime. They can't be left alone. They have to be stood up and supported continuously throughout the day. I did want to ask one question about personnel. Are you all still utilizing your residents? Absolutely. They are the critical part of the workforce. They are awesome. They are brave. And they have more energy than their slightly overweight 59-year-old <laughs> Yeah. I could not agree with everything you just said more, Sheldon. I, you basically like read my mind there. I was going to say that I think it's totally okay to take yourself out of this fight. If, for example, you or a loved one has a medical condition that would make it very high risk if you had COVID, I think that's okay. Um, I also think it's your responsibility not to put yourself in harm's way if you don't have PPE. If you get COVID and you're at, and you you become a victim, that's more work for everybody else. But if you are in this fight and you do have PPE, I think it's our responsibility as physicians and leaders to lead by example and to lead from the front. Now is not the time to hide in our offices. Everyone is scared. All the nurses are scared. The RTs are scared. I think it's our responsibility to be hands-on where appropriate. This means going in the rooms, you know, doing procedures, or just being compassionate or just helping. This demonstrates to staff that even though we're all scared, we're not letting it get in the way of providing good patient care. And I think that leading by example is just absolutely critical right now because the staff is going to start to get burnt out. They're going to see their friends get sick. And we, we got to keep morale high and we got to stay motivated as a team. One more thing with that is the C-suite. So we have to be in the C-suite. And I have to tell you that I'm very proud of the leaders of health and hospitals. Mitch Katz, who's the CEO, is actually a good friend of mine. He's a really great guy. And he takes my phone calls, right? He's not one of these distant CEOs, you know, that no one gets to talk to the wizard. So he takes my phone calls. His leadership takes my phone calls. And also, Chris Mastromano, our CEO, and Suzanne Panaccio, I can walk into the room. They give me a, you know, give me a moment if they're having a meeting. I can ask them if I can close the door, and I can sit with them. And it is very important if you're going to lead this fight that you can sit with your leaders. They may not always agree with you, but as long as they'll understand your opinion. And sometimes they may not agree with you right away, but they'll chew on it. And, you know, if you, if you make your case and you do it in a responsible, emotionally intelligent way, and, and they say no, but you go away and you come back and you talk to them again in a respectful way, you will have a much better response. You need to be in with the leaders of the hospital.
So one last question as we're wrapping up, and again, I want to thank all of you for your time. I just would love Nick and Alex and Sheldon, if you could just talk about, I know you are all faced with some tough decisions, and I'm wondering, are you getting support from your leaders or from your coworkers or from medical ethicists in making these decisions? Let's have have Nick go first. Throwing him under the bus. Yeah, you're throwing me under first. So, I mean, I I think there's a lot of tough things we're dealing with right now. We're dealing with issues at end of life. So it's really heartbreaking when you see that somebody's loved ones cannot be present when when they pass away in the ICU. And this this is kind of a Kobayashi Maru situation, right? If the loved ones are negative for COVID, bringing people, family members into the hospital who are often elderly and not trained to wear PPE puts them at risk. And if the loved ones are positive for COVID, it puts staff at risk. So there's like, there's a lot of these tough situations. There's a lot of tough conversations going on. And unfortunately, as somebody who's used to having conversations face to face, a lot of these conversations are happening on the phone. And that's, that makes it much more difficult because it's much harder to interpret what that silence means. I would like to plug a resource put together by a couple of colleagues of mine at, at the UW it's called the COVID Ready Communications Guide. It's put together by some, some brilliant docs, um, Tony Back and Randy Curtis, among others. And basically what it is, is it's scripted ways to respond to difficult questions or difficult situations. I would encourage your listeners, if you're sitting there staring at the phone, dreading the call you're about to make, take a look at this website for a minute or two and see if it, it makes um, having a difficult conversation just a little bit easier. And I'll make sure to put a link to that in the show notes as well. Thank you, Nick. Well, one thing I think that we need to say, so, you know, America has, has preparation here, and that is staffing, both staffing models and how do, you, how do you staff? Because the one thing in New York City that we are, in particular, in health and hospitals that we're running out of is critical care nurses, respiratory therapists, and, you know, I'd like Nick to speak to this. There's a conversation about functional nursing where you take a critical care nurse, you train other nurses sort of just below the level, and the critical care nurse supervises maybe three or four other nurses that are trying to train up to it, and that's how you get enough critical care staffing. So far, we have not been successful in our safety net organization with that functional nursing model, but we really need it. Nick, what are your thoughts on how we're going to get enough critical care and, and nursing staff for this emergency. I think that's a great point you raise. So the Society for Critical Care Medicine had a plan, which is basically what you said, which is that we can use people who have some, but not all of the skills as workforce expanders. So on the nursing side, that might mean taking nurses who are not critical care nurses, but maybe have worked extensively in the PACU. And you can pair them up with an experienced critical care nurse, and you can rapidly get them up to speed. And you can also use them to to cover more patients. Um, On the physician side, you can do things like you can have somebody who is not an intensivist, um, but has cared for people in the ICU before. So for example, a medicine hospitalist in a hospital with an open ICU, you can get them to be a pretty high level ICU provider pretty quickly. And I think one of the things that I'm trying to do, and I hope other people will do, is find people who have a little bit of time, who can round with you, who can work with you, who can do procedures with you and pick up these skills because, you know, in a few weeks, they may need to be doing your job for you um, because you may have twice as many ICU beds and you may not be able to be in two places at once. Or, so, you, or you might be sick. 
right, or I might be sick. And so it, it, there's always a balance here, right, between taking somebody who's only done, you know, 30 or 40 intubations and, you know, letting them do a tube with you right next to them. But that person may need to do tubes in the near future. You know, I, so I, I think I think now is the time to identify the workforce expanders, either on the physician side or on the nursing side, and bring them into the unit so they can learn from people now. Well said. Anything Nick. else that either of you or anyone else wants yeah. to add? <laughs> yeah, Nick, I have a, a clinical question for you that, that's on my mind. Is there going to be a role for tracheostomy? And if so, oh. what do you think what's going to be indicated in these patients? Is that's something we're going to have question. to address uh, here pretty soon. That's a great question. Yeah, I, I think that there's going to be a lot of patients who are older, who have been on the vent for a long time, who are difficult to wean. And I think keeping them on the ventilator for a long time is going to consume a scarce resource. So I think that's a great indication for using tracheotomy at a systems level. I think there's also great evidence at a patient level that they will be more comfortable with a trach than on the vent. The, the three things that I would think about in whether to trach a COVID patient or not are number one, have they cleared it? Is it safe to do it? Number two, have they failed reasonable trials at extubation? And number three, do we have the resources to do it safe? I think the challenge here is that you have to figure out, okay, who's going to be doing this? Is this going to be intensivists doing a percutaneous trach in the ICU? Or is this going to be ENT doing it in the OR? I think that's probably pretty unlikely. Is it going to be ENT helping you out in the ICU? That might actually be the best model because then you can get the people who are best at doing this doing it in a place where the patient already is. You don't have to worry about moving them and, you know, all the challenges therein. So I I think that's an excellent, excellent discussion, Nick, about this. And I just want to re-emphasize what you said about the virus. If if you're going to trach someone that no longer has the virus, that makes infinite sense. But if you're traching someone with the virus, you, A, may never be able to get them to another place, B, you are creating a virus spewing machine. It's a conversation amongst the faculty. It's a serious conversation. It's a, it's a dangerous and probably the riskiest procedure of all the ones we've been discussing. And also to think about who in the hell is going to take trach COVID spewing patients to a sniff. I'm seeing it on, you know, Bilal Joseph's created with others created this national WhatsApp chat, and we're seeing that conversation. I think it's an important conversation that we all have to have in the coming days and weeks. Okay, so it's clearly been all over Twitter and um, social media that N95s are usually a one-patient use and dispose kind of mask, but there's a shortage, which is understandable. So we're coming up with ideas and ways to have them be extended. So five days, seven days, 14 days, you can rotate four masks, you can bake them. I mean, there's a great um, online education about like how to sterilize your mask. I guess what I'm wondering is, is this appropriate? Should we just say, listen, in a shortage, this is the best we've got. Like you said, it's kind of like wartime right now. Is this the best we've got? So a couple of things are, clearly not a good idea. You should not bake your own mask. There is at least some evidence, and I forwarded this uh, to uh, my leadership, that you can professionally either use UV sterilization or perhaps ethylene oxide 
to sterilize these masks. But that's, and there are at least two uh, systems that are doing that. I don't want to say which systems they are, and they're sending them to professional organizations. And look, you will double and triple your supply of masks if you do that. So that is a consideration. It is definitely technically feasible to do that professionally, but not with a Betty Crocker cookbook machine. I would not do that. If I have a mask for two weeks, like I should not come home every night and bake it. I'm not an expert, but I, I don't. First of all, two weeks is a very long time. I, I, if you're using your N95 continuously for two weeks, I can say with very good uh, certainty that that is too long. But right? the standard here is really no longer than five days, and you know there's a certain number of hours in my mind that that would be. So w- one thing I I think is true is that the mask doesn't deteriorate after one use. It still fits. It's not damp. The one thing you have to make sure in your donning and doffing routine is that you're not going to be touching your face to get to that mask. So obviously, there's usually an over mask, right? There's usually an over mask if you're going to be reusing that N95, and you have to make sure that technique is okay. So there is no question in my mind that some in this emergency, some number of reuses of the N95 is appropriate when it gets soiled or when it's particularly damp at health and hospitals, we will provide you with a new N95, but we can't give you an N95 for every procedure. So there's some happy medium for that. And I do think that that's working. I do think that it's working. Nick? I I guess the only thing that I would add to that is that I think that there's a good role for reusing and sharing pappers in the ICU. Uh, You can have one intensivist papper that you wipe down and reuse. And literally one papper reused for weeks can take care of, you know, multiple shifts, multiple docks. I think that's a good solution and it doesn't require you to burn through those N95s as much. And so just Nick to understand how one operationalizes that, first of all, have, have you done that? And obviously, yes. not so, every nurse and not every proning team and not every intubator and not every respiratory therapist in the building can have PAPRs. So how do you operationalize that? That's a good question. And I, I can't answer the question of resource availability and how you're allocating it. Um, that's that's a tough one. That depends on your institution, how many people, how many PAPRs, et cetera. I think to the to the question of how you just like logistically do this, you really, really, really want to have somebody whose job is to help you get in and out of your PPE who can be floating around the unit just doing that. That makes it so much safer and it's good to have those extra hands. This person does not have to be a nurse. This person does not need a very high level of training. It's great if they are a nurse, but um, you know you can use a lot of people for that. What this looks like is I go into the room with a papper on, with a gown on, with gloves on. When I'm done in the room, I come out of the room, I take off the outer gloves, I take off the gown, I step out of the room, and then I have this assistant wipe down the outside of the papper so it's completely cleaned, and then they'll take it off me wearing gloves, clean gloves, and they'll hang it up to dry. And then it can sit there for a few minutes until it has killed all the virus on it, and then it is safe for me to use again in another procedure. So that that would be in particular for the most high-risk procedures, but obviously not everybody who's working in the intensive care unit 
either needs that level or right. really have access to it. Right. I'm, I'm really speaking here to like, if you are somebody who is intubating, if you are somebody who is extubating, if you're, if you're in those very high risk situations where there's just virus coming at you, um, I think this is a good approach if you have the resources to do it. I know the evidence is, is that N95s and PAPRs are, are equivalent in terms of protection. They both provide high-level protection. So I don't, I don't mean to make people think like oh, your, your N95 isn't good enough. Um, really, I'm just saying I think this is a better way to do it, to conserve N95s for those high-risk procedures. Are you doing bronchoscopy? Because bronchoscopy would be one of those procedures. And I heard I saw on the chat list that there's a way to sort of do it in line that's less risky, but we're not planning on doing any So, yeah, I think the recommendation from the professional societies is do not do bronchoscopies on these patients. It's a very high-risk procedure if you do so. I think there's an interesting question, which is, what do you do for people who have swabbed negative? Um, Do you do bronchoscopies on them, or is, like, the probability of a false negative high enough? To be fair, we do. I do a bronchoscopy for every trach. So should I be right. learning how to do blind trachs? Yeah, good question. Yes. I, I don't know the be careful. That. Blind. Yes. I did blind trachs. Blind percutaneous trachs are wildly dangerous. Let Let me add this though. They're They're not dangerous if you do a hybrid technique. So you cut down, expose yeah. the trachea, yeah. and then put your needle in and do your perk procedure. Yeah. No. I and you don't I need agree. a bronchoscope. You got to know how to but, do it. But yeah. but I think I think if you know going back to that for a second, I, I just think the risk of doing the trach period and the risk of having the trach afterwards, if somebody is still testing positive, is really really high. So I mean, we reduce the risk maybe a little bit by not doing it with a bronchoscope, but then there's still this tremendous risk of a tracheostomy spewing virus. So I would be very cautious about doing it in any form in somebody who was positive. A shout out to a colleague of mine who very astutely did a bronch and diagnosed uh, pneumocystis pneumonia last week. This is, you know, just a, a reminder that even even in the era of COVID, not all hypoxia is COVID. Um, so this was a situation where a patient had swabbed negative and he thought, you know, I should consider something else, did a bronch, found something else, or treated that patient. I just wanted to say... You know, so I grew up in New York City. I grew up in the Bronx, not too far away from this hospital that I work in. This hospital is my home. That I have seen such. So my my uh, chief of respiratory therapy is is now uh, sitting next to us, Kevin Brenson, and I have seen such heroic, brave, professional, devoted work from his staff, from him, from he in particular, from our nurses from our physicians, from our leadership, from in particular the housekeeping folks. I am so proud, so proud to call myself a healthcare worker, to work amongst you, to sit next to Alex and my colleagues. This is what we were made for. It's, it's terrifying, but we will get America through it, and it is because of the brave and dedicated people that we work with that I am so proud to be a part of. Thank you all. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, all of you guys. This has been a great conversation. I'm looking forward to re-listening to it. Um, Anyone have any last thoughts or we all feel pretty complete at this point? 
I'd just like to echo those thoughts. You know, I think many colleagues have made incredible sacrifices. People are literally moving away from their families to, to focus on dedicating themselves to this job. It's humbling and terrifying that worldwide 10% of the victims of COVID are healthcare workers. So we're all at risk and yet people are rising to the challenge. I feel truly lucky and proud to work with these amazing people. This is a, this is a serious time and, and, you know, a lot of really horrible things are happening uh, in New York right now. Um, I, I, I do have a little lighthearted note to share. Um, maybe, maybe this will be useful to you. I would really admonish your listeners not to pass gas while wearing a papper. <laughs> the, the issue is that that HEPA filter, while it may filter out 99.99% of virus, filters out 0% of fart. And it's located right on your lower back. So it just sucks it in and then uh, gives it back but to you. And I, I think the ICD code for this, by the way, is a Dutch oven. <laughs> and I thought I was just going to say that we, when this is all done, drinks are on me. And I, I, you know, I took some money out of the stock market before this thing hit. And I've spent that money in the amount of drinks that I offer anybody. But my friends and colleagues, I got a little lake house and all of America's healthcare workers are invited for bourbon and beers at my place when we have vanquished this hashtag, fuck this bug, fuck this bug. Oh, you guys rock. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate you. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, Remember that all you need to do is look to the east.